Hello and welcome to What Do Buildings Do All Day, a podcast about architecture and the lives we each live in the company of buildings. A slightly longer introduction this week to kick off the podcast season in 2021 because I thought it would be a good idea to look back a little at the year that just was. It was, of course, a really difficult, challenging and tragic year, and it revealed many deficits in our world, but also some potential now in how we plan, fund, structure, design, organise, build and use the world around us. Every year, though, I do frustrate myself by gathering and reading end-of-year reviews of culture, the arts, the lists of ones to watch and so on, and as usual, architecture didn't feature. This is despite the fact that in 2020 there was perhaps a lot more discussion on housing design than normal, on town design, on the value of the built environment, on the relationship between climate change, building and architecture, on the need for parks and outdoor space as part of our everyday lives, on space standards and how big things are, on the need for balconies in apartments, on the value and use of public realm and public space in towns, cities and villages, on the demands and limits of working from home. While that discussion was going on in the national media, several architects made some very nice buildings indeed. Architects won awards and competitions nationally and internationally. Architects were lauded and invited to speak and teach around the world. And there was the very tiny, not very consequential matter that two architects, Shelley McNamara and Yvonne Farrell of Grafton Architects, actually won the Pritzker Prize, which, if you don't know, is like an Oscar. But no national paper covered architecture or that event really at all. In the case of Grafton, building a building and running an office, communicating generously and regularly about what you do and the value of architecture as they do, working on complex, ambitious projects around the world and teaching architecture non-stop for almost 40 years and doing this for decades and getting better at it, is every bit as an achievement as making movies or writing books, yet I cannot imagine or conceive of the Booker Prize or the Best Director Oscar going unnoticed, unappreciated and unacknowledged by the media if an Irish person won it. Maybe at this time right now with all that is going on this does not really matter, but in a way I think it really does. I've been reading 35 years of assessor reports for the Architectural Association of Ireland Awards and for 35 years in those reports there has been a concern raised that architects are not living up to their potential in participating in the formation of the spatial and social future of Ireland. What that means is that we're not designing very much and what we are designing is quite small. This won't happen or change if the Irish Times has an architecture critic, but it is all connected and it is vital that we demand and advocate that architecture takes its place within wider discourse on culture, creativity and construction in Ireland, and it's really essential and important, I think, that not only architects ask for that. In the future, we're not going to do things much better than we do now. We will not be able to understand the complexity of what it takes to fix a town and make it habitable for the next hundred years for families, or how to ensure that communities are enabled to be involved in the decisions that matter and the places in which they live. We're not going to know how best to retrofit buildings or build new buildings that contribute to rather than destroy the planet. We're not going to know how to make housing that responds to us as Irish people and how we want to and need to live in this island unless we start to embrace and harness the practical potential, inventive imagination and material magic of architecture. I think it matters because in 2021 we can no longer afford to believe that the primary value of houses is measured in euros nor can you afford to either accept that architecture has no value at all. So let us together do our own review. 
Over the next four episodes, we'll hear from some people who have been invited to reflect on the year that was. We won't cover everything we can't. It's just a sample, just a start. We have a long year ahead though, so we'll get to more. To begin this season, we start with the subject, topic and discourse of housing, something which came up a lot in 2020. I asked Lorcan Sir to take us through some of the key events in housing as he saw them last year, and I started by asking him if 2020 was an eventful year in housing. You know, you could nearly say every year, Emmett, uh, is, is a good one for housing. It's, housing is like the gift that never stops giving because, it, it, you know, there's so many related aspects to housing from, you know, you've got your health and you've got architecture and design and you've got infrastructure and transport and engineering. And there's a whole lot of things. So, you know, all of these disciplines tend to give us something. Uh, this year, though, in fairness, was particularly uh, interesting because of, of stuff we'll touch on later on, I suppose. But earlier on in the year, we had the, the you know, the, the, the long, drawn-out, protracted discussions around forming a new government. And uh, actually, one of the TDs lives uh, around the corner uh, from me here in, in the Green Party. And she, she, I'd say the Green Party are probably coming under a lot of pressure with the things they're having to vote for now that they didn't. Um, expect to or they opposed when they were in opposition uh, but out of the problem for government though like housing and i know some of the people who were involved including nessa around the corner here was involved in the discussions around housing but a few things came out of the problem for government that i thought were quite interesting and i suppose the first thing is like we, we have we put a huge amount of emphasis in ireland on new build uh, and on, oh, it's, all, it's all about the market and it's all about new buildings and actually we've got an awful lot of empty buildings around the country something like 180,000 at the last count in 2016 and in the program for government was uh, the commitment to a, a project called town centers first which is to look at our town centers uh, outside the major 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 urban areas but look at our town centers and look at the vacancy in them and how they can be rejuvenated and regenerated and what we can do like what pilot projects can be run to make the town centers back into functioning um urban and desirable urban locations and i thought it was a great move uh, yeah. actually because it's it's low hanging fruit in terms of lots of things housing rural regeneration urban regeneration apprenticeships a whole lot of stuff going on there in, in town centers uh, and i thought that was, that was brilliant and, and indeed in my with wearing my other hat i'm on the board of the irish refugee council and we look at things like alternatives to direct provision and one of the things that we have strongly recommended is that we use town centres uh, and outside the major urban areas, you know, the, the smaller town centres around the country for housing people who come out of direct provision uh, and, and not obviously flooding small towns with thousands of people, uh, but, you know, very uh, diplomatically and delicately kind of introducing schemes so that we can bring direct provision people to be housed in town centres and rejuvenate those town centres with, you know, mm. the, the more people you have in town centres, the more people you have going to the shops and maybe keeping banks open and pubs and all that kind of stuff. So that was good. And the problem for government, town centres first. And the other thing then that's good was the discussion about a right to housing or potentially yeah. having, you know, a look at a, a constitutional relook at the right to housing. I think we've had one already. Um, now, look, semantics are really important in this. Um, uh, how you how you phrase these things, it's not necessarily... Mm um a right it's never going to be a right to a house and that would be wrong anyway um, and a lot of people who object to this get, get very head up about you know all these freeloaders are going to get a free house the usual stuff that you hear and it's not about that at all it's it's about putting a, in the best case scenario it would be about putting a constitutional floor under policy that would preclude actively you know any policy that would actively preclude people from reasonably accessing a house or accessing a house at a reasonable cost you know the the, the constitution would, would put a floor under that so that you, you know it would help people to stay to house themselves really um now i'm not sure it's going to work out like that 
I have a feeling that a right to housing might be diluted, watered down, or the the the, the wordage will be changed in some way, shape, or fashion that will make it slightly less meaningful than what I'm describing. But anyway, it's interesting to see it. The problem for government. I guess one of the things that's come up in the conversation about whether or not we should or should not have a referendum on housing, whatever the wording is, is that at the very least, referenda put the subject and the topic in the frame. And as you, you know, you might imagine it draws out a whole other range of voices on the topic from, you know, at all kinds of levels. And, and at least you're going door to door and face to face to have a conversation with someone about what you actually mean by public housing or social housing, what these terms mean in practice. It's, it kind of makes it yeah. less abstract, right? Yeah, absolutely. And politicians will have to put their cards on the table and yeah. see what their what their idea of housing is, what public housing like we don't have public housing in Ireland. This is a, a common misconception that we have, you know, with public housing. We don't have we have social housing, we have private housing, we don't have public housing. To me, public housing is is, you know, anything supported by the state housing that's kind of uh, um majority the majority of, of the delivery is supported by the state in one way, shape, or form. So state housing effectively, but it could be for people like you and I who are, you know, full time academics, or it could be for for someone who traditionally gets social housing. It's that whole spectrum between, you know, social renting and private ownership, and we don't really do that public housing uh, here. But the other point about that is it would also the the, the discussions or if there was a you know conversation around the right to housing, it would highlight. Um, all the charters that we've signed up to that we've not ticked the box about right to housing on. Uh, and there's several of those out there that we signed up to various charters. But, you know, when it comes to this little section on the right to housing, we've we've not ticked that box. And also on a more positive note, it would probably draw out a whole lot of people. There's a lot of really good people in housing in Ireland working away in the background. Yeah. Um, and it would draw those people out in a really positive way. It would, I'm not going to name anybody, but there's really good people working, particularly in the area of, of housing rights. Uh, and it would draw those people out into into the into a narrative. Hopefully, or they'd be you know they'd be asked their opinion and their expertise because you know the last ten years has been dominated very much by economists and by market forces and that, that discussion around housing as a market product rather than housing as 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 a home essentially. Uh, and so it would be good to kind of broaden the discussion a little bit. Yeah. And then, of course, we have our seventh minister for housing in 10 years. What impact does that have on housing? Yeah, so I was I was kind of I went going through my, my own book, actually, where I have a list of, of all, all the ministers. And I was surprised to see that it went back as far as John Gormley. You know, if, I have to struggle like I struggle to remember what he did when he but he was in that, you know, that Fianna Fáil Green coalition that far mm. back. Uh, and going back 10 years, you're back into into John Gormley time, uh, Eamon O'Quave. You know, you forget, and Eamon wasn't there for very long, but he was a minister. Uh, Phil Hogan, uh, Alan Kelly, uh, Simon Coveney, Owen Murphy. Things started to go a bit haywire around Alan Kelly, if I'm perfectly frank uh, about it. And not that things were ever perfect in housing, but things did start to go haywire around Alan Kelly, particularly bringing in, um, and I think, in fairness, I think he was incredibly well intentioned, but bringing in things like the Section 28, what's called mandatory guidelines. So in, 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 the way you get legislation across is a couple of things. There's a there's a ministerial directive which has to go and be voted on the doll, and that's an instruction that can't be unfollowed. That has to be followed by local authorities to do a certain thing. And there's ministerial guidelines that you know are guidelines to local authorities to do a certain thing, but they don't go in front of the doll, and the local authority can ignore them. Under Alan Kelly, they brought in this kind of hybrid bastard version of them both, which was the uh, um, the ministerial 
the mandatory guidelines, which are guidelines, so they don't go in front of the doll to be voted on, but they're mandatory on local authorities. And that's the beginning of the rot, really. That that started kind of a whole swathe of legislation that was a bit, you know, not quite straight and a bit, you know, developer-driven, effectively very much developer-driven there. But the, the impact of having so many ministers, uh, you know, you've got seven, in, in, they don't last long. They're not there to see the, the fruits of their labours. Um, you know, and they're moving on invariably in housing. In, in housing has, has you know, has a reputation as a dysfunctional government department for decades. And I can say that as someone whose father worked there uh, for, for most of his civil service career, I can say that quite honestly, that it has had a reputation as being pretty dysfunctional. Uh, and I think ministers, particularly, never mind the department, but just the, 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 the portfolio of housing uh, is a messy one. You know, and it also involves environment and local government and all the other ones. But you know, housing is the dominant one, and it's messy. Housing is a messy topic, and hmm. so I think a lot of ministers are there. You know, as they're getting, a, they're notching something up on their LinkedIn or their their CV, and then they're they have an eye, eye on another prize. You know, I suspect that like, I know we denied it, but time called, we couldn't wait to get out of there, uh, and understandably so. Um, but they're they're never around to have much impact because because they're they're gone so quickly. And then the danger then is they'll try to do something high impact in the short term that's really really bad like removing the high caps uh something like that you know that bringing strategic housing development something the, the, the strategic housing development system like things that are you know trying to get a quick win but have huge impact on hmm. local democracy and, and and on you know the housing and planning systems so it's not good to have such a high turnover of ministers but sure who wants to stay in, in that portfolio you know it's a, it's a difficult one but you mentioned earlier about the discourse of housing being damaging to the, let's say, the subject of housing or to the progress of housing in Ireland. Uh, it does strike me that in the last, I don't know, four or five years, somehow the, the housing has also become, it's not that it's never not political, but it has become politicized to the point of uh, the subject of it is not, we're not really, I mean, maybe it touches on your thing maybe about urgency, that we're not really getting to the bottom of what the issues are because simply it's this sort of tennis match or ding dong back and forth yeah. about the politics of it, or it's played politically rather than someone really sitting down and trying to bet out what the, what the challenges are yeah. and how to map out a new future for it. Yeah, and uh, like so, there's a lot of discussion about the financialization of housing. So turning what would yeah. be people's homes traditionally into an investment product that gives you a, a, in the the investors a, a, an annual yield or return uh, on their investment. And and actually, it's very interesting. There's a guy called Rory Gillen who's an investment analyst who probably won't thank me for highlighting this yet again. But he wrote a note to all his investors saying the biggest threat to your money is the development of an affordable housing scheme. Or, or housing that is affordable, not even a scheme, but just housing that is affordable, because that will undermine the built to rent and the high rent uh, developments and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But the financialization of housing has dominated, the economics of housing has dominated the discussion for a long, long time. And it ignores then things like health and, you know, the political philosophy and, and welfare and housing and all that kind of stuff. That stuff gets pushed. To the, I suspect if you asked, you know, a half a dozen of these great housing commentators out there to tell me the relationship between the environment and housing, climate change and housing, or even health and housing, they wouldn't be able to tell you. All they know is about the money, the spreadsheets of about housing. Yeah. So the discourse of housing has been poorly, you know, poorly served, really. But the, the, the financialization of housing couldn't have happened without the politicization of, happen, of housing. That's kind of the way the way I look at it. Um, you, you, you wouldn't get the financialization of housing if, if, if the politicians who had been there um, hadn't wanted it to happen or it hadn't been part of their ideological you know armory um and so there's an agenda amongst a lot of politicians or or, or a willingness amongst a lot of politicians recently 
to listen very carefully to the lobbyists. And the lobbyists are all about the financialization of housing, but that's 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 their that's what they're there for. That's what they exist for. Uh, Alan Kelly started it with Simon Coven, who had very open ears to, to the lobbyists, and Owen Murphy did too. And now we see Dara O'Brien too. So we have we have Irish housing policy it is being written by Irish institutional property, property industry Ireland, the CIF probably as well. Um, and it's become very politicized. And we see appointments that are, you know, be hard to kind of work out that they're not political. You know, the the the, the I see the bodies like on Borpanala off meeting developers uh with the minister out out in London looking at, you know, Mac housing solutions like co-living in London. Uh and you know uh, that shouldn't happen. They shouldn't be out with developers anyway. And if they are going to meet people, surely they can meet like, you know, decent examples of good public or social housing or cooperative housing or whatever. Uh, but to be out meeting developers who are interested in building, you know, a shoebox kind of uh, accommodation in some in, in industrial estates around Dublin is wrong. And a lot of that stuff is about meeting targets for the minister. Simon Coveney brought in Rebuilding Ireland as a set of housing output targets every year. And a lot of the stuff, a lot of the output that has gone on is about achieving those targets, no matter what the quality is or no matter whether they're actually needed or not. So we, we, we've got it kind of very wrong. And, and then as a result of that, the politicization of housing also emerges in things like the manipulation of data. So when the numbers don't suit, you'll find the Department of Housing manipulating the numbers uh, to make it suit. So, for example, in the in the uh, in the counting the homeless figures, there's about ten different categories of homeless people. We only use three of them. If we mm. used all ten, we'd be swimming because we don't we don't even count rough sleepers who are the true homeless. Like you yeah. know, you couldn't get a better example of a homeless person than somebody sleeping down by the canal in a tent. We don't count them as homeless. Um, and it's the same with with new housing output numbers uh, a few years ago. And it's the same with the social housing output every year that they talk about they've delivered X thousand houses. But when you go and look at it, a lot of them are bought and a lot of them are delivered by other bodies. Um, so there's there's a lot of you know obfuscation. There's a lot of um, manipulation. There's a lot of presentation of data to, to designed in a way to make it difficult for people like myself to analyze but also designed in a way that supports the minister in achieving those targets. So it's, it's very, and maybe that has always gone on. Maybe that's gone on back in the 70s and 80s uh, when I wasn't at this crack, but like I particularly noticed it in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Throughout the year, there was a lot of opposition to co, um, co-living and uh, ultimately resulting in a ban on co-living by the minister. Um, do you a half ban, really. A half, half ban. ban, well, uh, at, yeah. least, at least those words, the word co-living, ban and minister were put together in a sentence. <laughs> Um, so, but like in, a, in a, let's say in a healthy market or a healthy sort of housing structure or system with mm. a wide menu of available types and forms of housing, do you really think co-living yeah. is the problem in in the kind of does it does it merit a ban or is it just a, a, a lightning rod for kind of anger and frustration? And I mean, I know there are there are pros and cons to it, and there are people who speak to both sides of it. And mm. but interesting question right in other jurisdictions you will find that what i would refer to as the mac housing solution so they look good you know on the menu but then they don't last they don't satisfy you for very long the mac <laughs> housing solutions like student housing and and, and, and co-living and this they work well in other jurisdictions because they come in and they're affordable so student housing in belgium where i went to university was 400 euro a month the yeah. equivalent here is 11 or 1200 and we squeeze the goodness out of everything the way we have things designed here we we, we you know it's it's the minimum is the maximum, and then we charge as much as we can for it, uh, and and that's what we do. We spoil it really for ourselves. Uh, we could have co-living here. We could have decent student housing here for students. We could have all sorts of decent built rent if it was affordable. But we don't. We're we are effectively. I'm going to put it out here. We are greedy buggers, Emmett. Really, we are very yeah. greedy, and we want the, the highest return possible. 
and part of the problem then with the the you know with the other impact on the planning side the impact of co-living student housing and everything like that is that and these are this is a direct result of department of housing policy changes to facilitate these it drives up land value because they're so valuable then people would pay more to buy the land on which you could build co-living or student housing and the increase in that value precludes an ordinary house builder from coming along and buying that land to build apartments or housing for sale for ordinary punters like you and me and instead we end up with loads of co-living we end up with the student housing an awful lot of which has been empty for a long time but people didn't want to talk about that and are now looking for planning permission to change it to different to for temporary change you used to to particularly during COVID. and um, so th the problem is, is twofold one it's very expensive and the second problem then it, it increases and inflates massively land values which just precludes then all sorts of other apartment housing apartments or house building for, for for sale so that's why last year you see over 90 percent of all the apartments were bought by funds by investors because ordinary punters couldn't uh, afford afford to pay you know couldn't afford to buy them so they're bought by funds so we're, you know we're, we're kind of housing or planning policy has turned us into a, a nation of renters in, in many respects much against people's wants and desires and also it kind of works against that kind of you know a nation we're not a nation of renters and we can't be because the way our welfare system works mm. that your our houses are our assets and, and when you and i are 65 emmett and we we take the, the carriage clock and we walk away from our respective institutions the, the plan is that our mortgage will stop in that same year so our salary will go down by 40 50 percent but so we won't have a mortgage can't do that if you're renting our salaries will go down but our rent would stay the same so our whole system is predicated on home ownership and to change that isn't the matter of five years it's the matter of lifetimes um but we seem to be kind of running down down that road as a result of lobbyist influence i have to say and you'd wonder who's right well i've no doubt who's writing the policy of the department and it isn't the department nor the minister it's um three or four groups of lobbyists who are writing that to, to consume themselves and we've weak ministers then intent on achieving political targets uh, who are quite happy to roll over and let their bellies be tickled by these three-letter acronym lobby groups. So we've that's ended... That's an awful image, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's one that's going to linger, right? Um, so we, we have ended 2020 with an affordable housing proposal. So I'm take it from what you said, you're not convinced of that? By that oh, well, that, that, that's it's nonsense. The shared equity, is this what you're talking about, the shared equity idea, yeah. yeah. So sh shared equity is, is where... There's two things that, that go on, uh, mostly in Anglo-type countries, Australia and, and the UK uh, and here, anywhere that, where the Brits have been, they've left their scar on, on housing delivery. And so the shared ownership is where you would, a household would buy, say, 60% of a property and they would rent the other 40% from the state or whoever else had built it. Uh, and over years, they'd incrementally buy like 5% five percent five percent five percent at a time until they own the whole building it typically doesn't work because they they don't bother buying out the five percent and they know that they can't be evicted so they'll sit on their 60 or 65 percent shared equity which is proposed what's proposed here is effectively giving a household two loans to buy the property so it's not reducing the market value so a household will still go and pay four hundred thousand for that now we, and, and it's up to four hundred thousand this year excuse me, which is a target now watch all the houses go up to three nine nine three hundred ninety nine thousand so shared equity is where a household will go out and maybe borrow seventy percent of the property of the of the price of the property from aib or bank value where and the state will give them the other thirty percent or twenty five percent whatever it is that's needed to have a deposit as well um but the state's loan the, the the loan that the state have given them doesn't get re, doesn't get due for repayment until about five years down the line so you're tipping away and you're paying away your mortgage for five years and then after five years the other mortgage kicks in as well 
so what is what it's doing Emmett, is it's helping people afford what's on offer rather than making what's on offer more affordable it does nothing yeah. to bring down market prices actually it's designed all housing policy in the last 10 years has been designed to make to maintain that high or, or the market price not to bring that down because we know that you know housing that is affordable is a big threat to investors and god forbid we offend the, the investors so this scheme you know it's also it, remember it's taxpayers who are putting up the 30% equity to, to help the house buyers buy a, a property. And they are also second in line if something bad happens. So the bank, the AIB part of it, will if they'll be the primary creditors and the state will be secondary. So if people in five years time might have a huge crash, it might be thousands of people, tens of thousands of people that are work and can't afford to pay that portion of the mortgage. Um, and so the default on maybe that portion, the state portion, that's you and I. So that money is up the sprout, essentially. So it's hugely risky for it. it, it you're burdening people with effectively, it's a way around the central bank lending limits and you're burdening people with, with nearly 100% mortgages. And that didn't go down too well the last time we had those. And you're you're also putting a huge amount of risk on the state. The, the house builders are building houses and flogging them at 399,000, 399,000. They're walking away from it. And the state will be taking the burden of the risk and the homeowners will be taking the burden of the debt at nearly 100 uh, percent for the next 30 years and that's bonkers uh, Emma. that's not a way to 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 run a, a housing policy that's just that's a prop for the market okay obviously the other thing that happened in this year is COVID, the thing we can't escape and you've already mentioned and that had an impact on housing and i suppose in one one way it had an impact on housing is it it shifted or expanded the way houses were being discussed a little bit and where they were being discussed. I mean, for the first time that I can remember in a long time, how the house as a physical designed object, for example, in terms of its size and dimension and its relationship of one house to the next and where it sat within a neighborhood was being discussed in kind of mainstream media in a way that was not about property, but it was about quality of life and um, yeah. you know, health and well-being. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting things that were my bugbear for years like the size of houses uh, came yeah. to the fore and it was really it was really good to say now look i told you so it's small units are bad for people's physical and mental health and we we know that since 2013 like the average size of an irish house has gone down by nearly a third uh, you know and that's as a result of changing planning policy where allowing developers squeeze more smaller units with lower ceilings and less windows onto sites uh, but space has now become critically important not just for all the kind of people in service jobs and professional jobs that can work at home um but generally for anybody uh is mm. you know if you're in a small space uh, and particularly if you're locked in uh, to the small space or if you're quarantining or anything like that it's incredibly important for not just your physical health but also your mentally mental health like the three square meters of a balcony that you could have in a second floor apartment might keep you sane the fact that you can open those french windows or walk out there or whatever that's your access to the, the other world the outside world and so it's been really good to see that that's didn't get the attention it deserved, but I like to see it come out as an important factor. And again, housing policy, we've been since Alan Kelly, we've been busy with really busy reducing the standards of particular space uh, in our housing, and that's you know it's just such an awful uh, move to make. So that's that that has been good that we've highlighted that. Um, the fact that people don't want to get on public transport is really interesting now. Um, so the five in the city or to be able to walk uh, around around the city or walking out of work or, or not commuting has become something that people are now much more conscious of. You see a lot of people then, you know, deciding to move. People who can, I suspect, it's not kind of dubs like myself, but it's probably people who come from a rural background who will move back to Offaly or Leash or Waterford or whatever and mm -hmm. maybe get, you know, a more affordable housing in the town or a site from their parents or whatever it is. 
Uh, and okay, if that if that can work, I don't think the office is dead by a long shot. I think the office is still alive and kicking. They might be just used in a different way. Um, the other thing that's come to the fore is the idea of health and housing and the importance of things like ventilation uh, and the way we, you know the way maybe standards haven't haven't necessarily helped us. Things like getting you know an A rated B or uh, if people don't know how to use their buildings properly, it might actually be a spreader of COVID rather than a facilitator. So things like ventilation have become quite important. And you know the, the NEF people didn't mention ventilation for months and months and months, even though you know the Japanese and the Taiwanese were well uh, well on top of that. But recently I see they've slowly started to kind of mention things like the importance of of, of ventilation in a house and keeping fresh air moving to it. Also and, and kind of one of my areas of expertise in inverted commons is the private rental system and for years we were, were told that you couldn't have a ban on evictions and you could do this and you couldn't do that and suddenly come COVID and in fairness I'll give Mo Murphy the credit here he turned around and he put a ban on evictions uh, and you know that's would be very much against the ideology of a, of a, of a, of a Fianna Gael minister but uh, they did that and it just shows you what can be done when mm. necessary but you know if you look at the literature around all this kind of stuff it says that invariably Invariably, it takes a crisis uh, bigger than a housing crisis, but you know, particularly a health crisis, for something like this to happen, uh, and it did happen. So, COVID, for all its its its, its crapnicity uh, as such, has kind of highlighted a few things: the importance of space, the importance of being able to walk around your community, uh, and you know, being able to not necessarily sit in a car for an hour commuting this way and that, and also then that things can happen when they're when it's necessary for things to happen. And do you think any of those things can have an impact to address? The first thing we talked about, which is how seemingly intractable the kind of housing process and housing system seems to be at the moment. But I think what it does, I think what it does, it gives people like myself and, and yourself and that a little bit more ammunition to argue for the right thing. You know, we have we now have kind of more evidence around the need for space and the, and, the, and the benefits of space to counteract the arguments that also the development isn't viable because I have to put a three square meter balcony on on the and you know better than me that a three square meter balcony doesn't cost a whole lot of money in the in the in the grand scheme of building a, a an yeah. apartment block. So I, I don't know. I think it just gives us more ammunition that we can kind of go and argue and fight the good fight out there and say, look, space is important. Building communities, not just blocks of co-living or blocks of apartments is important. You know, it's important to have facilities, services around you, not just throw up blocks and say, well, that, that's the housing target metal and I can walk away. You know, you need the, the, the community facilities. You need to be able to walk around the place. You need green space, open space, um, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think it just it gives us more ammunition in our belt. Um, you know, to, to fight the good fight for decent housing. Yeah, yeah. And so what else do you think happened in 2020 that's interesting? Well, the, the last thing, there's loads of things, I suppose we could, we could talk for ages about this, but I suppose the last thing, which is interesting because it takes it out of Ireland and, and you know, it's, it's really good to get a perspective outside Ireland. I, I organised a conference in 2018 where none of the speakers are for Ireland. I'm sure a lot of people expected to get asked were annoyed, but I got six or seven speakers and including the UN Rapporteur on Housing, Leilani Farah, uh, in to speak about housing around the world uh, and it was really good because you get a different perspective because like people like us we go to housing conferences or what we used to and like when i see the lineup on the conference like, you can just you can write the script you know you know what they're going to say you know what they're going to argue for and people i'm sure put me in that category as well um so it's good to go go outside so what i was interested in was ursula, ursula von der Leyen's uh, talk back in october about a new bell house now look it's sketchy on detail but what she's kind of at is, is looking at a way, uh, this kind of new Bauhaus to bridge like science and technology with art and culture. Kind of, so Bauhaus is the, the Walter Gropius movement. 
that you know an awful lot more about that than me but her idea is that we need a new way of looking at tackling climate change we new a new way of living and that if we can find a mechanism to bring the science and technology around climate change and better ways of living to the art and culture of creating different decent housing that we might have something to to work on now it, it is incredible it is as vague as i'm explaining to you there uh, but it's interesting to see somebody like her who originally was a medical doctor actually uh, but yeah. you know she's at, she's at the head of this big huge administrative bureaucracy you wouldn't think that this stuff would be you know crossing her desk or on her radar at all but she came out with this and i, I just kind of thought that was interesting just for what it signifies about with the way these people are thinking and you know it, it's a little chink of light there because dealing with housing can be not, not quite depressing but it's a bit miserable sometimes you know uh, and and as you see each increasing policy um you know utterance from from successive ministers being worse than the previous one um to have someone like ursula von der Leyen talking about a new bauhaus even the reference to bauhaus was kind of a little bit inspiring you know going back to something positive and kind of that bauhaus of something that i like and actually we have good examples of, of around dublin and um, ironically most of it built by dublin corporation built by the state um but we we have good examples so it's kind of a little bit chink of hope or chink of light there that someone at that level in that kind of organization is mentioning housing in that way.